0: Welcome to the Hills Baptist podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. I'm excited to preach this morning. I, uh, last week I was preaching at another church and while it's always wonderful to go and visit other churches and encourage uh, our brothers and sisters in different places, I always miss you guys. Because I just love this house. I love what God's doing. And it's, uh, yeah, it's beautiful to be able to be here preaching the Word. And today we're starting a brand new series, which I'm so excited about. A series in the Gospel of John we're simply calling I Am. Looking at uh, the seven I Am statements that Jesus makes throughout John's Gospel. But before we get to those, I felt like it was so important today to begin this thing by sitting in the prologue sitting in the first 18 verses of the first chapter in a message that I'm calling night vision, how to see in the dark. Night vision, how to see in the dark. And um, as I've been sitting with the Gospel of John, I've been thinking about the fact that in recent time, well, not recent times, probably for the last 10 or so years, I've developed a real love for a late night cup of chamomile. Anybody? Anybody? My wife thinks chamomile smells like feet, but I love it. <laughs> I also love a late night cup of peppermint if there's no chamomile. And uh, funnily enough, a number of years ago, I was at a buck show with a group of guys and it was a wonderful weekend. And the next morning, we went to a cafe. And as I was at that cafe, I'd, you know, the people in front, can of have a double shot, this, and I have a triple shot, espresso, whatever. They're all outlining their coffee orders. And I went up and said, oh, can I please have a peppermint tea? And she looked at me and said, I think she summarised the crowd, and she goes, no worries, and what would your boyfriend like, darling? <laughs> 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 oh, that's very funny. Um, the problem with giving into a 9pm urge for a cup of chamomile is that sometimes it causes you to give in to a 3am urge. <laughs> that's something quite different from that. And... Um, uh, the other morning, such an urge came upon me, and I woke up at 3 a.m. or whatever time it was, and it was pitch black. Anyone ever, you know, those mornings where you wake up and it's so dark you can't even see your hand in front of your face? Anyone? Anyone with me? And uh, so I wake up. I'm I'm sort of scrounging about, you know, trying to my well, eyes, you know, trying to find the door basically. And I sort of get up and I kick my foot against the corner of the bed, and they're like bang into the, the wardrobe. I'm like, I'm you know, the doors, I'm sure it's here somewhere. And as I was sort of working my way to the door, all of a sudden I stepped on something. And as I stepped on something, this this extraordinarily for 3am in the morning, loud noise came on like this. And I realised I'd turned on my uh, beloved wife's hairdryer. <laughs> so what was supposed to be... A, <laughs> A stealth mission at 3 a.m. in the dark is now no longer stealth. I think I've woken up the entire household. I'm there, like now on my hands and knees, trying to figure out how to turn this bloomin' thing off. But it's not a normal switch. It's got this weird round circle thing. And eventually, I hear this very gracious, if I'm honest, voice from the bed. Just call out, "Do you want a light, mate?" Uh, on the light goes, I finally figure out how to turn it off. She's like, why don't you just pull it out of the walls? I'm like, Well, I didn't think of that at 3am in the morning. What's it doing on the floor is another question. I wasn't going to raise that this morning. One of those moments in time where I am sitting there thinking, man, I wish I could see in the dark. You know, like, man, how cool to be just to be able to have just some inbuilt night vision that when things are so dark that you can't even see your hand in front of your face, you can just go, like, ah, now I see. Now I see where I've got to go. And instead of banging into things and causing all the issues, you just find your way where you want to go. And I've been thinking about that as I've been thinking about John, that how cool to be to be able to see in the dark. Anyone ever felt like that? Anyone ever had that thought? How awesome would it be to be able to see clearly in the dark? And I'm not talking about the halls of your house when the lights are off. I'm talking about something so much deeper. When the darkness seems to encroach, when it's it's difficult to see, when it's difficult to navigate, when there's something about darkness which brings confusion and there's something about being able to see that brings clarity. And I think we are living in a world where this darkness is constantly encroaching in. I think the Scripture paints this beautiful picture of light and dark, light and dark. It's one of, the, one of the major themes of Scripture. And it's definitely something that John is so interested in as he pens his Gospel. This narrative of light and dark, of seeing and the blind, this idea of how to see in the dark, how to find our way, when things are confusing. And so as we come to John's Gospel and we understand that this is part of what he is looking at, what he is trying to encourage us in, we arrive at the first chapter with what your English teacher would call a prologue. That John sits down with his first century MacBook Pro to write his glorious account, this glorious story of Jesus life and his interaction but John is writing after having read Mark's account after having read Matthew's account after having read Luke's account he's read these accounts and he's now he's now an old man you know no longer the son of thunder who was angry and violent and wanting to call down lightning from heaven on anyone who would oppose his right to go and proclaim the gospel like this is a transform now. He now calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is a man who has walked with Jesus, who has, his life has been radically transformed. And, and in having read these other accounts, he sits down with an express intention to write a gospel to help God's people see in the dark. To see truth, to know truth to understand truth, to recognise that God has come, that the people of God in the midst of a world of confusion would have clarity. And it is a glorious, glorious gospel. And so he sits down in chapter one and he says this, and we're going to read the whole thing. Is that all right? He writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light for all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Oh, it's so good. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness testifying concerning that light so that through Him all might believe. But He Himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. I'm reading this slowly because it's like the richest mud cake you'll ever eat. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. from all over the world, regardless of faith, you know, whether, they, whether they believe this is the inspired Word of God or not, scholars everywhere will declare that this, these 18 verses, this passage of Scripture that we just read is one of the most masterful, poetic, philosophically rich pieces of literature that has ever been crafted by a human hand. It doesn't matter if they're, they're full of faith or not. Scholars look at this and just drop their jaw and say, wow, that is phenomenal. And what makes it even more phenomenal is that while scholars would look at this and say, well, this is the work of a literary genius. Like this is the work of someone with blistering intelligence. Luke would have us know that actually this is the work of an ordinary unschooled fisherman who has been with Jesus. An ordinary unschooled fisherman who has been with Jesus wrote this. You know, my old uh, English teacher would use the words, he'd say, Dave, he'd say, there's poetry and there's poetry. He'd say, you know, there's art, And there's art. I mean, there's, you know, there's Nick Bland in the jingle, jangle, jungle on a cold and rainy day where four little friends found a perfect place to play. Hello, parents. You know, the very cranky bear. And then there's Robert Frost, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. You know what I mean? Like there's poetry and then there's poetry. You know, there's Bieber and there's the Beatles. There's, I was like, baby, 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 ooh. You know, and I don't even have to talk about the Beatles, you know. <laughs> Imagine all the people. Like, there's, there's poetry and there's poetry. There's Bush and there's Obama. You know, I, someone showed me the other day this video of George Bush trying to say, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you. I don't know if you've ever seen that video. He's like, fool me once, shame on you. Then he's like, fool me twice. Well, you know, you just can't fool me. <laughs> And then there's a barber as he goes off and he gives these incredible speeches like A New Beginning and things like that. Like there's, there's, there's literary works and there's literary works and this is something incredible. Like this is so rich and so profound, but it's also incredibly accessible. And what I wanna do today as we go through this, because it's it's so meaty, we could spend weeks upon this and barely touch the surface. But I want to just bring out a few things. If it's all right with you, I actually want to nerd out a little bit this morning. Is that okay? And just get a little bit of a teach on, as, go to Bible college a little bit and have a look at the richness of what it is that John is trying to do in this passage. Because as we come to this passage, we have to recognise that John is a Jew and John is writing to a first century Jewish audience but we understand that that audience is now deeply embedded in Greco-Roman culture most likely John oversees sort of the the Ephesian church as he writes this and so he's in a Greco-Roman metropolis which has all the pagan ideologies all around it. It's rich in, in Greek philosophy and Greek thought and trade. There's so much going on. And yet he's a Jew, which is just, therefore this people which has this rich history and this incredibly profound cultural understanding of who God is and how he works in the world. And so this is John's, context and setting as he writes this gospel and as he writes he says in the beginning was the word now let's stop right there in the beginning was the word the greek word he uses here for word is logos and logos is a is an idea first coined by uh, Greek philosopher um, Heraclitus and he then and built on by Plato and Aristotle and these guys and it's this idea that there is something there is knowledge or reason that exists to the world that there is this this thing this this force that gives rise to meaning on earth that All things came from this divine logic, right? They look at the world and go, there's this divine logic at work in the world, hence why things are so orderly and fit together. And so for a Greek person in hearing in the beginning was the Logos, that'd be like, yeah, that's really interesting. I hear you. I understand what it is that you're saying because Plato actually was like, you know, this Logos could be linked to a character, a person. It could be personified. And so in in Greek philosophy, this concept that in the beginning was the Logos, where does it take him? It takes him to the very beginning of the origin of the earth. It's this origin story. And so by hearing John say, in the beginning was the Logos, they're like, yeah, 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 you've got me. I'm in, I'm in. Talk to me. I understand what you're saying. But for a Jew, when you hear in the beginning was, what do you think? You think Genesis 1. A Jew reads that and says, in the beginning, God. What did He do? Created the heavens and the earth. And so for a Jew, where does this same sentence take you? The origin story. So for the Greek, John says, in the beginning was the Logos, And the Greek goes, bang, origins. For the Jew in the beginning was the Logos. And a Jew obviously now living, you know, immersed in that Greco-Roman culture, understanding Logos means word. And so for them, like, yeah, God created by His word. He spoke and light came into being. So God spoke. Therefore, in the beginning was the word. They're like, origins, Genesis 1. Guys, He is simultaneously with one sentence engaged two completely different cultures with the same idea. What? This is like, this is profound genius, right? As he begins, in the beginning was the Logos and the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. Again, the Jews like, yeah, that makes sense because the Word came from God's mind. So it was a part of who God is and it came forth. Therefore, it does stuff. It's different. And for the Greek, they're like, oh yeah, you know, the Logos, divine reason. I understand. He's like, bang, two cultures. Wow, what's going on? He was with God in the beginning. So he's engaging two cultures in one moment. And it doesn't just stop in verse one. It goes on for 18 verses as he begins to talk about light and darkness as he begins to talk about glories he begins to talk about truth and for the philosopher the greek person this is this is profound that he's saying the logos took on flesh he's saying the logos can be known he's meeting him right where they are at in their philosophical cultural context and he's taking him on this journey to say the logos the thing that you you you've you know, you ethereally understand as reason and meaning is a person and that person is Jesus Christ. He came for you, the Logos came for you. He can be known, He desires to be known. And so often when I've preached this in the past or I've heard this preached in the past, that's where we stay and that's where we stop, that the Logos can be known, that Jesus is the reason and the meaning and the purpose to life, that where Solomon saw meaninglessness as he looked around, Jesus brings meaning to our existence. He is the Logos and we say, yeah, awesome, hallelujah, praise God. But that's not what I want to preach this morning. Because while John is giving his TED Talk to the Greeks and blowing them away with the depth of his philosophical understanding, he is simultaneously, underneath that, speaking with profound Intelligence, understanding and wisdom to the Jew. He's got two messages, meaning two separate groups with one word. You might say that this is not just blistering intellect, but maybe this is inspired. This is incredible. And I just want to pick out a few things and show you some stuff in His language and his, and his literary style and how it applies to our life. Because as we look at the Jewish element of this and we begin to understand in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. As you look through this, there's a few things that John is doing that so captivates his Jewish audience. Go with me to Genesis 1. Flip the page. And watch this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be what? Light. What you're going to see is that John 1 and Genesis 1 run completely parallel to one another. The crazy thing about Jewish literature, the crazy thing about the Hebrew language, and as you, the more you dive into this, the more it will blow your mind, is that meaning is not just found in the words, it's found in the structure of words and the way things are put together, right? So when John, in John 1, when he writes, he mimics the exact structural form of Genesis 1. You see, Genesis 1 begins with four lines, As an introductory thing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. John 1 begins with four lines. Genesis 1 then goes through... Two sequences of three that mimic one another. Watch it. He says, let there be light. So there's a sequence light. And then he says there was a vault between the waters. So there's waters. And then he talks about uh, the land. There's light, waters, land. Day one, two, three. Then day four, five, six, mimic the exact same thing. Light, waters, land. They mimic one another. Then there's a closing statement where he talks about finishes at the beginning of chapter two that God created on the seventh day, what? He finished His work and He did what? And He rested. John 1. Oh, guys, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was with God in the beginning. There's four distinct lines. Then there are two sequences of three that mimic one another. Don't believe me? Have a look at it. Two sequences of three that mimic one another. As you go through this, you'll see Genesis 1, light waters land, light waters land. John 1 goes like this. Light enters the world. John bears witness. Some receive, some don't. And then he mimics it. He says the exact same thing again, right? Light enters the world. John bears witness. We have received it. And then there's a closing statement. And that closing statement is an incomplete sentence. It's crazy. Like the way that we read it in John 1 is that no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who Himself is God in closest relationship with the Father has made Him No one, but actually in the Greek, that sentence doesn't actually end. It just says, he has revealed. Revealed what? It doesn't say. The Greek word's where we get our word to exegete. It's like this son exegeted. And you finish and you're hanging. You're like, well, what did he exegete? And because we in the English language don't like incomplete sentences, the authors, the the translators finish it off for us. They say, well, this is what he did but that's not actually what John has done here he's left it hanging as a way of leaving the rest leading us into the rest of the book so that we would go well what did he explain what did he reveal and the rest of the book shows that he revealed the father and so John 1 structurally mimics exactly Genesis 1 and if you're a jewish reader as you're reading this in your mind you're going wow There's this meaning, there's this depth to meaning that John is doing here while simultaneously, remember, still engaging the Greeks. He's engaging the Jews with his structure. It's incredible. And he's saying, what I want you to understand is that the Word became flesh. Jesus is the one who spoke existence into being. That one you worship, Yahweh, Jesus is Him. And He has come that He might be known. So as we analyse this and what is to come, we got to understand the significance of the way things are written. And all through the Gospel of John, as we engage the Gospel of John, as we engage these I Am statements, nothing, not a single word is wasted. All of it is going to speak powerfully into the nature of Of Jesus Christ. So, first, there's this structure of threes, right? That mimics Genesis 1. Secondly, have a look at the way he goes about it. He says, So through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's talking about creation. It's talking about Genesis. It's that Genesis 1 link. And he goes through that idea that, all right, I've created, spoke light into existence. There's this bloke, John, who comes and to all, you know, to all who received him, they became children of God. But then he repeats himself. And it's easy for us to go, well, why is he repeating himself? because he goes on and says you know the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us well haven't we already read that hasn't he already said at the beginning that that light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it like he's already sort of revealed that so he's he's trying to show us again so he's gone the genesis 1 image of light and that speaks to genesis 1 speaks to eden what's eden eden is the garden What happened in the garden? God dwelt with His people. God walked with His people in Eden. It's this creation ideal, yeah, that God would walk with His people. And because God was at peace with His people, walking in the garden, there was rest. There was a seventh day rest. It was like, this is what the world is supposed to be like. But then something happens. And as a church, as we've been reading through Genesis and Exodus, we know that what happens, darkness, sin, brokenness comes into the world, doesn't it? And there's this separation between God and humanity. And because there's that separation and the world slowly, you know, people, humanity slowly decays and the darkness creeps in more and more and more. As we get to Exodus, we read that God establishes a temple. A tabernacle, I should say. A tabernacle, which is supposed to be a physical representation of Eden, the place where God's presence would dwell with his people. And in Exodus 40, some of you have just read that, the glory of God comes and rests on the tabernacle. Look what John says. He says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his what? His glory. So he's gone, he's gone Genesis 1, Eden. The second sequence, which is a repeat is Exodus 40, Tabernacle. And so in one prologue, he is declaring, this is who God is. There is Eden, there is Tabernacle, it's Genesis, it's Exodus. And he's saying, this is again, who Jesus is. He is God dwelling with his people. This is the nature of Jesus. This is what I'm about to write. Remember friends, a prologue, it's like it's the, the introduction, the purpose of a prologue, Year 12 English, is not just to set the scene or give context, it's to help us comprehend. The purpose of a prologue is to enable us to give us foresight so that we would understand what is about to be written through a particular lens. John wants us to understand that the things he's about to write, what we're gonna look at in the next seven weeks, all of it needs to be through the lens that this Jesus is the Eden God, is the tabernacling God with His people. And so, as you see what Jesus does, as you hear what Jesus says, as you look at his sacrifice, look at all of it through a particular lens, through the Eden lens, through the tabernacle lens, through the lens of light, through the lens of glory, that this is who he is. And all of that in 18 verses. It's mind boggling. 18 verses, Eden, Tabernacle. But the problem is, you see, in Genesis 1, it's finished and God rests. John doesn't finish, it's incomplete. Why is it incomplete? Why would John go to the lengths to say, hey, I'm going to point you to this God who's your Eden dwelling God. I'm going to point you to the tabernacle dwelling God, the God who has come for you. This word took on flesh, Jesus, and he has revealed. What? (laughs) Why leave it as an incomplete sentence? There's there's a scholar who I'm just starting to get into who I really like, who's a scholar called Mary Colloe, C-O-L-O-E. And she suspects that the reason John leaves this unfinished is because Jesus is the one who finishes it. You see, when Jesus is on the cross and declares it is finished, it's the same root word of Genesis 1, God finished. Oh, come on, church. (laughs) That what she's saying is that it's incomplete because God has come to tabernacle, but in order to bring rest to humanity, It couldn't just be a tabernacle anymore. In order to bring rest for humanity, it couldn't just be an enlightenment. It had to be an embodiment. Oh, come on. In order for there to be rest, the Son of the living God, the Word made flesh, had to take on that flesh, had to suffer and die. And as He goes to the cross, dealing with that curse of sin, dealing with darkness, in that moment, He declares it is finished. And she argues that what He is doing is not just completing the prophecy of Psalm 22. He's actually going all the way back to Genesis 1 and He wants all the Jewish people in the world to understand now it is complete now there can be rest now there can be a seventh day union between god and man no longer the sacrifice of bulls and goats no longer having to go through a high priest once a year to that garden. no 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 now direct access now we can walk with god in the garden again that he is our tabernacling god oh it's so good and it's 18 verses what does it mean for us that's your question what does it mean for us well it means a couple of things first and foremost if god can write this through an unschooled fisherman he can use you sometimes i think we get we we get in a bad habit where we think well i'm just dot 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 i'm just this i'm just that I can't do that. God, could He, could God really use, and look, you know, we know the theology. We're like, well, oh, you know, God can do all things through all people. We have our theology, but really do we practically believe the fact that God actually wants to and will use you if you make yourself available? And here's the thing about John. When Jesus said, come follow me, he didn't force him to do it. He gave an invitation. He said, will you come follow me? And the son of thunder said, yes. And because he said yes, all these years later, having seen his best friends martyred, having seen the church beginning to blow up, having seen the move of God all over the place, so longing for the Jewish people to understand the fulfilment of their faith, writes the most glorious piece of literature that's ever been written. God can use you. God longs to use you and God will use you if you say yes to Jesus. And He'll use you as He wants to use you, when He wants to use you. But what He's looking for is an open, vulnerable heart. My question is 2022, is your answer yes or no? Is it yes or no? Are we open to the move of God? Number two, if God can transform the angry son of thunder who so despised the nation that was oppressing His people, to the point of violence, he can transform you. I love what Si just shared before when he talked about the, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing, nor your past, nor your future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, neither anything else in all creation. Friends, all he wants is a yes. And if God can transform John to the disciple whom Jesus loved and so soften his heart, he can transform you. He can transform relationships. He can transform family dynamics. He can break chains that are binding you. He can break addictions that are holding you. He can break preconceived ideas that have held you back from chasing after the things of God, God can transform every and any situation by the power of His right hand. Why? Because He is Yahweh because He is the great I am, because He is the Eden Genesis 1 God, because He is the Exodus 40 glory, the tabernacling God who comes for His people to redeem His people from enslavement into freedom. And I believe 2022, this is the year of release and freedom for the people of God that the things that are holding us and enslaving us and and chaining us, it's time to get free, to stop sitting under that and to realise that when He says it is finished, He means it is finished, that there is rest for the people of God. There is rest. There is a now and not yet, that there is a final seventh day coming when He returns on the clouds, but that is a now and not yet kingdom. His Spirit dwells with His people and there is rest. Who needs rest? Are you anxious? Do you look around the world? Are we full of fear? Are we stressed? The answer is yes. In terms of society right now, there can be rest in the midst of chaos. You can see in the darkness. You don't have to be stepping on the hairdryer at 3am in the morning, metaphorically speaking. No, there is a rest. Rest. That God longs to give in Christ. There is a rest that God longs to give in Christ. Ben, you can come up and we're gonna close. But here's the thing: as we dive into John, the power of his prologue is that Jesus is light. That Jesus is the one who enables us to see. That Jesus is hope that Jesus is the fulfilment of everything that has come before. All these chapters are not done away with. The rich heritage of faith, it's not a new religion, it's not a new book, it's a continuation of the old. This is a new creation. Why is He linking it to the origins for both the Jew and the Greek? The reason He's linking it to the origins is because He's declaring a new creation the old is gone, the what has come, the new, not the second hand, not the op shop version, not the pre-loved version, a new version. That God is not just the one who just, you know, fills in the chips. No, God is the one who puts you back on the potter's wheel and reshapes us into His image. There is a newness. That's why John is so concerned about origin stories. He's going, in Christ, I'm bringing you back to the origin. I'm declaring the reality of who you are in Christ. New, 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 new creation, new creation. 2022, new creation, brand new day. It's a brand new day. It's a brand new day, it's a clean slate. It's a clean slate, we might remember it, but He doesn't as far as the east is from the west. So far have I removed your sins from you. Though your sins be red as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Stop hanging on to the past. Stop hanging on to yesterday. Stop thinking about who you were and what you did and look at what John would have us look at, which is that I am made new, whole, redeemed, Yahweh, Jehovah, the great I am, is the one who has come for His people to make you new. He is renewing all things and a day will come when He will roll up the heavens like a scroll. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth, but the newness of life starts now in the people who would believe because He says, if my Bible would stop turning in the wind, Out of His fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. Remember His tabernacle talk here. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth, grace and truth. He says, we've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only. He says, we've received this grace and truth. The question is, will we receive it? It's there on a platter. It's done. Church, let's stand to our feet. I don't know if you can tell, I'm really excited about what we're going to learn in the book of John. Like, I'm, this, this thing is going to blow our minds. I want to encourage every one of us over the next seven weeks to read this Gospel. Can we do that? I want to encourage every one of us to pull it out and this week sit in those first 18 verses. Sit in it and just say, Lord, speak. Let this wash over me. Let the fullness of this new creation wash over me. Let it sink deep. Change me, transform me, restore me, fill me with the passion that I might say yes. They like John, when I'm old and gray, I can look back on life and declare, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm not the son of thunder anymore. Oh, I feel that so strongly. I'm not the son of thunder anymore. It's a new day. I am the disciple who Jesus loves. (sighs) What a revelation. You are a disciple who Jesus loves because of what he did at the cross in restoring Tabernacle, in restoring Eden. So we're going to pray because that's what we love to do here and if you would like prayer please come do not be afraid don't be self-conscious if there is a need pray Jesus says ask and it will be given you seek and you will find knock and the door will be opened if there's some chains that you're sick of carrying come The Lord wants to break them. If there is fear, come. The Lord wants to break it. Come. Come. If you're here today and you don't know who Jesus is, maybe you've been in church for a while. You can say the verses. You can quote the stuff. there's a distance come it's time to throw off the son of thunder and it's time to become the disciple whom Jesus loved you already are you just need to receive it because to all who would receive him he gave the right to become children of God and that is who we are And receive what God wants to pour out this morning. Pour out this year in abundance, pressed down, shaken, overflowing. I see a new river flowing through this church. New river flowing through your lives. With that river comes life. The barren land is gone. And there is a wellspring of life. He says, come and I will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Oh, I sense his presence. I sense he wants to do some things in our lives this morning. Would you come as we sing?